This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu to purchase this book. The title of this book is Systematic Theology in Two Volumes by Rusas John Rushduni. Copyright 1994. Ross House Books. Volume 1. Chapter 2. The Necessity for Systematic Theology. Section 10. Faith. One of the curses of the Church is its lust for respectability. The scholars of the Church look to the scholars of the world for approval and status. They look at the wealth and the buildings of the humanistic university, and in their hearts long for the imprimatur of the fallen world. For them, the millennium begins when the New York Times, Newsweek, or Saturday Review speak well of their books. But this happens only when these scholars crucify Christ afresh. This hunger for respectability is as old as the church. It meant, in earlier days, rephrasing the gospel in the language and thought of Greek and Roman philosophy, and the result was another gospel, or, at best, a compromise and perversion of the word of God. This deeply rooted hunger for respectability and peace with the enemy explains, too, the hatred toward those who will not compromise. Dr. Cornelius Van Til's uncompromising apologetics has earned him the hostility of the compromisers. Those who lust for respectability resent deeply the work of a man who makes clear that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. They refuse to admit the possibility that whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James 4.4 As a result, they rephrase the problems of theology in order to concede to the world the validity of its problems. They give respectability to unregenerate men. Instead of being a sinner, whatever the university degree he carries, they portray him as a man with honest intellectual problems which deserve weighty philosophical and theological considerations. These compromisers insist that man's problem is intellectual unbelief, for example, a question of knowledge rather than a matter of sin. But St. Paul witnesses powerfully and plainly against this heresy. In Romans 1, 17-20, Paul declares, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul tells us, first, that the knowledge of God is inescapable knowledge. We are told this again and again in Scripture. It is plainly set forth in Psalm 139, in Psalm 19, and elsewhere. It is the obvious implication of the doctrine of creation. God, having created all things, all things are revelational of Him and manifest His purpose and glory. Because God is totally the Creator, no other hand being present in creation, all things are totally revelational of Him. They can reveal nothing else other than God, their Maker. As the psalmist David declares, If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Psalm 139.8 Not even hell, the habitation of the devil and his cohorts, and of the fallen and reprobate dead, can witness to anything other than the triune God. It is this fact of creation that constitutes the common ground between all men 
and the point of contact. All men know God, although only the redeemed confess Him. Van Til writes, quote, It is only when we begin our approach to the question of the point of contact by thus analyzing the situation as it obtained in paradise before the fall of man that we can attain to a true conception of the natural man and his capacities with respect to the truth. The Apostle Paul speaks of the natural man as actually possessing the knowledge of God, Romans 1, 19-21. The greatness of his sin lies precisely in the fact that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. No man can escape knowing God. It is indelibly involved in his awareness of anything whatsoever. Man ought, therefore, as Calvin puts it, to recognize God. There is no excuse for him if he does not. The reason for his failure to recognize God lies exclusively in him. It is due to his willful transgression of the very law of his being. End quote. Neither Romanism nor Protestant evangelicalism can do full justice to this teaching of Paul. In effect, both of them fail to surround man exclusively with God's revelation. Not holding to the counsel of God as all-controlling, they cannot teach that man's self-awareness always presupposes awareness of God. End quote. Man's problem is not unbelief in the sense of ignorance, but unbelief in the sense of a refusal to obey God, because man insists that it is his freedom to become his own God. Genesis 3.5 Quote, We know that sin is an attempt on the part of man to cut himself loose from God, but this breaking loose from God could, in the nature of the case, not be metaphysical. If it were, man himself would be destroyed, and God's purpose with man would be frustrated. Sin is therefore a breaking loose from God ethically and not metaphysically. Sin is the creature's enmity and rebellion against God, but it is not an escape from creaturehood. End quote. Men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, so that they are without excuse. Men cannot think on any other terms than God's. They misappropriate that truth and attempt to use God while denying him. Their knowledge and sciences depend upon the truth of God, but they insist on a world of brute and meaningless factuality while developing their learning on the concealed premise of God's eternal counsel, decree, and order. Second, Paul clearly does not mean by faith a rational assent or belief. Habakkuk 2.4 tells us that the just shall live by his faith. This does not mean belief as mere acceptance of a proposition. For Habakkuk, it meant that the righteous man, in the midst of judgment, invasion, and devastation, lived and acted on the presupposition that this was the work of the righteous God who required him to live and obey him in the face of all things. The righteous are those who rely on God's word and act on it. So too Paul means by faith, not rational assent, but saying amen to God, obeying his every word, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6, and acting on God's truth and law, Sin is rebellion against God and the transgression of His law. Faith is trust in God, a total reliance on Him, and the obedience to His word which God requires. Now the point of all this is that a systematic theology which presupposes that unbelief, a lack of faith, means ignorance, a lack of the knowledge of God, will be alien to Scripture. It will presuppose a non-creating God, even though it may affirm the doctrine of creation, because its God is alien to this world. Such a God, not having made the world, can only introduce knowledge of himself into the world as something alien, a novelty to the world. His revelation would then provide a curiosity, 
not a necessity, because it would not be basic, not constitutive of the nature of the universe. We could then be interested in or believe in such a God in the same way that we are interested in okra. It may or may not be to our taste, but it is not relevant to our life unless we choose to make it so. Anti-presuppositionalist theologies and philosophies reduce God to the level of okra. He ceases to be the inescapable truth of all things, knowledge of whom men cannot eradicate, however much they suppress it. Knowledge of him is so inescapable that if men silence the witness within them and in their midst, the stones would immediately cry out. Luke 19.40 Faith means saying amen to and relying totally on the triune God with all our heart, mind, and being, and acting on and in terms of the reality of God and His law word in every area of our lives. If faith is reduced to, and believing on Christ becomes, a mere assent to knowledge or to reality, then antinomianism becomes a logical necessity. There is then no inescapable link between faith and works. On the contrary, to say then that we are saved by faith logically means that we are saved without any necessity for works ensuing. The doctrine of the carnal Christian, who is saved, but is still totally godless in his life, is a logical consequence of such a faith-only doctrine. The presuppositions of such a view of faith and belief are not biblical, but Hellenic. The biblical doctrine presupposes the unity of all created being under the triune God and His counsel. Hellenic thought holds to the division of reality into form, mind, ideas, and matter. The two are alien substances, coexisting paradoxically and in dialectical tension. The realm of faith is then the realm of ideas, of the spirit, and not of matter, works, and law. The gap between the two is not readily bridged, and, at best, only artificially so. There is, then, let it be noted, no systematics in the life of man. A man whose being is made up of two alien substances, or possibly three, has no necessary and systematic unity in his being. There is then a war between his members, which is metaphysical, whereas the inner warfare which Paul describes is moral. The Hellenic idea of man sees a contradiction between man's constituent parts, which is metaphysical, and inescapable. It is a necessary and continual war as long as man is in a body. Paul's warfare is moral and subject to defeat or victory. Man is at war with God, his maker. This warfare is one in which every atom of his being is involved, but because every atom of his being is God's handiwork, man's total being wars against himself. The Holy Spirit, too, witnesses to God's truth, which his unregenerate and fallen nature, his flesh, resists. The Pauline warfare is not anti-systematics, because it speaks of a war which sets forth the totality of God's claims and the radical and far-reaching nature of God's system of truth. The unity of man's being witnesses, despite its moral revolt, and even in its moral revolt, to the unity of God's truth. It is a witness to systematics. If, however, every man is his own God, and this is a metaphysical fact, then the only unity of truth is a purely internal one each man in his own self-defined and self-created system. We have then a multitude of self-enclosed and isolated systems which are existential in nature. When philosophy abandoned the God of Scripture, it abandoned systematics, and, after many vain attempts at creating a system apart from the triune God, finally abandoned the traditional discipline of philosophy as irrelevant. Metaphysics, epistemology, 
ethics, and every other area become relics of the older philosophy, except in existentialism. The existentialist followed the logic of Kant and reduced the world to the mind of man, and, within that world, a moment-by-moment -moment systematics now became possible. The world was radically reduced, but its unity was restored. When we speak of believing and of faith in terms of the Word of God, then we are in that unified field of consequences and relationships, which makes a systematic theology inescapably obvious. If we lack that biblical perspective, then we will follow an anti-biblical model, and usually that of classical Greek philosophy. Scholasticism saw salvation from such a perspective, and, as a result, the developing unity it posited led finally to existentialism. In the interim, more and more initiatives slipped into man's hands, so that faith came to be redefined. Aquinas strove valiantly to be faithful to Scripture, but his presuppositions were Aristotelian. He insisted on the unity of faith and works, but faith was defined as an act of the intellect assenting to the divine truth and motivated therein by an act of will moved by the grace of God. In that act of intellect, as in the act of will, it is not the sovereign God whose eternal decree governs, but a first cause which is linked together with man as the determiner. The implicit dialectic of nature and grace works to disunite faith and will. Faith as an intellectual assent is not total reliance on and acting in terms of God and His Word. And the sovereignty of God as the first cause is not the same as the sovereignty of the absolute Lord and Creator, who makes and predestines all things. Behind Thomas Aquinas stands another, and an existential loyalty derived from Aristotle. Quote, the human soul is incorruptible, end quote. Summa Theologia, 1, question 75, article 6. Here speaks not Genesis 1 and 2, but Hellenic philosophy. The soul is pure form or idea, and hence incorruptible. At the end of this presupposition stands Sartre, at the beginning, the tempter, and Genesis 3, 1-5. Protestant evangelicalism, however, is also scholastic. It sees the soul as something separate from the body and posits the old division common to all sons of Plato and Aristotle. Faith alone thus does not mean, for all such, justification by God's sovereign grace and predestinating decree, but rather the separation of faith and works. Faith then stands for man's sovereign will, and man is summoned to come forward and believe in Jesus and to accept Christ's offer of salvation. Christ becomes the petitioner and pleader before man the sovereign. But if man is sovereign, then he is his own savior. And both the tempter and Aristotle, and Sartre as well, are vindicated. It is man's task then to save himself and to develop his own systematics, moment by moment. Truth then is a do-it-yourself proposition, and it is as meaningless as man. Section 11. Systematic Anthropology Faith and belief in Scripture mean hearing and obeying the Word of God. They mean not mere intellectual assent, but the submission, the reliance on, and the development and reshaping of our whole being in terms of God's law, Word. Paul makes clear that unbelief is not a lack of the knowledge of God, but a refusal to submit to God's lordship and authority, Romans 1, 17-20. Man rejects God's authority and lordship in favor of his own, Genesis 3, 5. This is unbelief in the biblical sense. The consequence of this revolt against God is the perversion of man. Homosexuality is presented by Paul as the burning out of apostate men, 
Romans 1.27, burned out. The life of the reprobate man is a life of hatred against all authority, Romans 1.29-32. The reprobate hate God, they hate parents, they boast of themselves, and they are implacably hostile to all authority. Then Paul makes clear why there can be no word and no salvation for man. First, both God and fallen man have a word, a system, and a plan of judgment. In Romans 2, Paul contrasts the judgments of the ungodly and their inherent plan and system with the judgments of God. Man the sinner presents himself as the judge. But Paul says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whoever thou art that judgest. Romans 2.1 Man apart from God, whether in or out of the church, is under judgment. Man under God is man living in terms of God's word and in faithfulness to God's law. For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Romans 2.25 Status before God is on God's terms only. It begins with sovereign grace and reveals itself by keeping God's law. Second, man's system and word are products of depravity, not wisdom. There is none righteous, no, not one. And there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3, 10, and 12. Their words spring from a poisoned well. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Romans 3.13 Paul cites verse after verse from the Old Testament to sum up God's judgment on man. Every system of thought devised by man is thus from a poisoned well and under judgment. This is especially true of Phariseeism, which uses the law interpreted to mean humanistic goals as a means of justification. But no man is justified by works. No man earns an independence from God by his own actions. Romans 3, 20-30 Salvation brings freedom, not from God, but from judgment and reprobation. The redeemed are now free from sin and death, the consequence of their own system, Genesis 3, 1-5, and are totally under God's dominion in law. Hence, faith does not make void the law. God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Romans 3.31 This law is now established over and in us as God's way and an aspect of His system and eternal decree. What Paul makes clear is that, because of his depravity, there is no tenable system from fallen man. Fallen man simply works out the implications of his depravity in his life. Romans 1.24 And in his thought. Romans 1.21-23 Man's system is in essence the tempter's thesis in Genesis 3, 1-5. First, there is no sure word of God, yea, hath God said, and no assured decree of predestination, Genesis 3, 1 and 4. Man lives in an open universe, and the potentiality of man is the essence of that openness. The limitless potentiality and actuality of God make the universe totally open to God, a closed realm to rebellious man. For the universe to be open must mean fallen man holds to that limitless potentiality must be transferred to man. The system replacing God's eternal and foreordained decree is man's potential and existential decree. Second, logically, this means that man, not the Lord, is God. Hence, the culminating point of the temptation is that man shall be as God. Genesis 3.5 A new government, God, and law shall prevail. This requires a systematics of man, a systematic anthropology. Instead of systematic theology, we are given a systematic anthropology. 
As a result, the mind of man becomes a matter of great concern. The psychology of man gains great attention from humanism because the ultimate point of reference, potentiality, and coherence is the supposedly autonomous mind of man. Primitive tribes, perverts, mental defectives, criminals, children, and adults, all varieties of men, are painstakingly studied in order to give man the raw materials for the new systematics. Not surprisingly, modern anthropology began with Charles Darwin. As Dampier stated it, quote, It is hardly too much to say that modern anthropology arose from the origin of species. End quote. Politics becomes the practical sphere of action of every systematic anthropology because it is through politics that man seeks to apply the humanistic decree of predestination to man and the world. Basic to the idea of systematics is the fact that it has inherent in it the element of necessity. For the Orthodox Christian, things are ordered by God and have in and behind them the necessity of God's decree. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Romans 8.29 this necessity is not only in their own lives, but in all things. For known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Acts 15.18 The goal of systematic anthropology, modern politics, is to substitute the decree of man for the decree of God. More than one humanistic group and society have looked to the anthill and the beehive as the model state. All things exist by order and plan. So it is held, should man, by the source of the plan must be man himself. Man must remake himself and his world in terms of his own autonomous will. Theological writings in the modern world are thus political writings, and the most influential preaching in the modern era is political speaking. In the 1970s, the United States has seen an American president, Carter, disavow any Christian influence on his decisions, while professing to be a born-again Christian, and at the same time affirm a humanistic doctrine of human rights with religious zeal. The systematic anthropology of Carter and of other self-professed Christian politicians is a very clear one. It is thus a serious error on the part of churchmen to look for modern challenges to the systematic theology of biblical faith from church sources only. Such challenges, however real and important, do not represent the main challenge. Systematics has, on the whole, left the church for politics. The political thought of Soviet theoreticians is rigorous in its attempts to be systematic, and Western political theorists are no less dedicated. It is, moreover, a requirement for systematic theology to place every area of life and thought under the jurisdiction of God the Sovereign and His law word. Polytheism openly posits many gods, and hence many jurisdictions. As a result, a particular god could be escaped by leaving his jurisdiction. Hence the Syrians of old held of Israel. Quote, Their gods are gods of the hills, therefore they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. 1 Kings 20, 23. We find, however, similar opinions in many church circles. Christianity and the state must be kept strictly separate, a very different idea than the separation of church and state. The one posits a religious and theological division, the other an institutional one. Other churches insist on seeing the state as exclusively secular and hence under reason, not scripture. Thus, we are told by a Lutheran in a review of a work by F. A. Schaefer, quote, Similarly, one finds in the author a typically reformed desire to structure government according to biblical and even Christian principles. He would like to see the Bible made the law book of the land, if not literally, at least indirectly. 
He describes with approval Paul Roberts' mural, Justice Lifts the Nations, with justice unblindfolded and pointing her sword downward toward a book which is written, The Law of God, and adds, To whatever degree a society allows the teaching of the Bible to bring forth its natural conclusions, it is able to have form and freedom in society and government. While we indeed recognize the scriptural truth that righteousness exalted a nation, Proverbs 14.34, we must affirm that human reason, the natural knowledge of God's law, and the power of the sword, not the revealed word of God, are basic principles for secular government. End quote. To hold that there is one kind of faith and obedience in the church and another in the state is hardly in agreement with scripture. The systematic anthropology which manifests itself in politics links to itself modern science, for example, post-Darwinian evolutionary science, as the basics of the new faith. Scientific politics is to provide the new decree of predestination, the new source of authority and power, the new decree of election and probation. Failure to see this fact means irrelevance to the triune God and His Word. It means that we have a Neoplatonic church theology, which holds its doctrines in abstraction from the real world, from that unity which constitutes the God-given creation. The more that Neoplatonic faith abstracts itself from the context of the material world, the clearer and the higher its ostensible spirituality. Neoplatonic religion will thus produce an abstract theology in which irrelevance is a mark of purity. Its doctrines will become Neoplatonic ideas, and the church will become a monastery or convent, a place where withdrawal from the context of the world is a virtue. The modernist, however, will seek relevance, but again on Platonic terms. Marx, after Hegel, saw the idea or world spirit as dominating the historical process, so that history became the idea. The state is the idea in time, and hence the relevance of the particulars is denied in favor of the idea, the state. The ruthlessness of modernist social action in condemning capitalists, fundamentalists, Calvinists, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, fascists, all their opponents, and others speak of a contempt for the matter of history as against the idea, the state. Even more than systematic anthropology, systematic theology must include law, politics, work and calling, the arts and sciences, and more. There are no limitations to the sovereignty of the triune God, nor on His jurisdiction. To mark off systematic theology as an area having the Church and its doctrines as its province is to manifest polytheism. Universality, or Catholicity, is the mark of God's kingdom. But modern man has surrendered it to philosophy first and now to the state. This surrender is sin and heresy. Not until systematic anthropology is replaced by a truly systematic theology can churchmen call themselves Christian. Section 12. Inevitable Systematics Religion will always govern a man's world, and it will do so systematically. Man works continually towards a systematics to express his faith. He seeks that systematic expression of faith in life and thought, in art, science, architecture, sexuality, politics, and all things else. Urban construction is an expression of a world and life view. Schneider has described this fact in urban planning. In the works of Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Kublai Khan, Peter the Great, Stalin, Kubzchek, Brasilia, Louis XIV, the two Napoleons, and others. Of some cities he wrote, quote, The ancient cities, 
usually excluded everything that grew naturally, and this is true even now of many oriental cities. One might be tempted to call this the logic of city building. Man does not care to see anything save what he himself has created. It appears most strikingly in St. Peter's Square in Rome. The absence of natural space and trees was not accidental. It was planned. Only man's creation was to appear. In other areas, the emphasis is on a totally controlled nature, formal gardens, man-trained shrubs and trees, and a park which manifests man's hand at every turn. The 1960s saw a war against all restraints on man by either God or man. A consequence of this form of humanism was a hostility against culture, development, or utility in the natural realm, and the ecology movement resulted. Man does not want the slightest snail troubled because he rejects any and all interference with his own lifestyle. Man's religion is a working concern. It works steadily toward systematizing his life and world in terms of man's presuppositions. The regulations of an age are expressive of the faith of an age and its concept of ultimacy. The unity of God's creation is an aspect of our inescapable knowledge of God. Romans 1, 18-21 Men cannot long tolerate a schizophrenic or double-minded state. They work to resolve the conflict of principles even when it means a major inner and outer tension in battle. There are distances in the universe, but no watertight compartments divide reality into unrelated realms. One of the constant problems of scholarship is this tendency to isolate data in terms of areas of study, so that determination is seen in terms of one's area of specialization. Mamigliano has rightly observed, with respect to studies in the history of ancient law, that, quote, a wrong interpretation of economic or religious facts can easily lie at the root of a wrong interpretation of legal facts and vice versa. End quote. Religion will always govern a man's world. It will do so systematically, and it will provide the unifying principle to make all things cohere one to another. This is a function of religion, to provide coherency. But a false religion, instead of providing coherency and systematics, will result in confusion. The reason for this is, as Van Til has shown, that, quote, no sinner can interpret reality aright, end quote. He begins with a false premise, a misplaced doctrine of ultimacy, and he proceeds systematically to false conclusions. By making himself ultimate, the sinner begins and ends with a falsehood. His false premise means that every aspect of his being is corrupted by that falsehood, and every act and thought is similarly affected and infected. Van Til cites this same effect in the life of Satan. Quote, Scripture tells us that Satan and his hosts were created perfect. Satan originally tried to dethrone God and has tried this throughout the ages. Yet, in the nature of the case, he can never succeed in doing this. God would not be God if he could be dethroned. Accordingly, Satan's knowledge appears as false. He has made and continues to make logical deductions about reality that are untrue to reality. Satan managed to have Christ crucified in order to destroy him. Did he not know that by the crucifixion of Christ his own kingdom would be destroyed? So we see that, though, on the one hand, Satan's power of ingenuity is great. He constantly frustrates himself in his purpose. He is constantly mistaken in his knowledge of reality. Since the fall, man continues to think systematically, but from a false premise. He will commonly think logically but from a false starting point. He premises his every use of the law of contradiction on a contradiction. 
He holds it in an abstraction from the ultimacy of the triune God, the creator of all things, including the mind and the logic thereof, as though a law could exist in a chaos. Instead of applying the law of contradiction to his own irrational efforts to prove or to judge God, he should apply it to his own proud presuppositions and condemn himself as illogical. When man denies the fact of creation and of the fall, he asserts thereby the ultimacy and the normalcy of himself and the world. If the world is not the creation of God, so that creation can be dated, the world is ultimate. If it is ultimate, it is normative, because there is nothing then beyond man and the universe to judge them. The errors of philosophy in the past have stemmed, Calvin declared, from this assumption of normalcy. Quote, Hence proceeded the darkness which overspread the minds of the philosophers, because they sought for a complete edifice among ruins, and for beautiful order in the midst of confusion. They held this principle, that man would not be a rational animal, unless he were endued with a free choice of good or evil. They conceived also that otherwise all difference between virtue and vice would be destroyed, unless man regulated his life according to his inclination. Thus far it had been well. If there had been no change in man, of which as they were ignorant, it is not to be wondered as if they confounded heaven and earth together. But those who profess themselves to be disciples of Christ, and yet seek for free will in man, now lost and overwhelmed in spiritual ruin, in striking out a middle path between the opinions of the philosophers and the doctrine of heaven, are evidently deceived, so that they touch neither heaven nor earth. End quote. Such an assumption by philosophers leads to the claim of autonomy for the mind of man so that the normative is what man says and does. Van Til adds further, quote, Moreover, according to Calvin, the primacy of the intellect as taught by the philosophers, in virtually denying the fact of sin, therewith in practice always denies the creator-creature relationship. For man to ignore the fall is always tantamount to ignoring his creation. It is the proper part of the creature to subject himself to God. It is the part of the sinner to refuse such subjection, end quote. Presuppositions are like roads. As long as we are on a particular road and traveling, it will lead us to a particular destination. To go elsewhere, I must take another road. To speak of the systematics of all things is simply to say that given presuppositions about what is ultimate will lead to given conclusions. Modern man has tried to make reason creative. The freedom of reason would then be its power to create a new reality declare new presuppositions, and create new conclusions in terms of man's autonomous reason and powers. But man's mind is religious and therefore logical. It is a creative mind, the handiwork of the triune God, and therefore its processes, even in man's fall, are totally governed by the eternal decree of God and the necessary logic of his creation. On the other hand, God thinks and creates out of nothing, there is nothing outside of God to govern, influence, or in any way condition his mind and activity. The language of God is thus, like God himself, eternal and unchanging. The British sociologist, Basil Bernstein, has rightly observed, quote, If you change the culture, you change the language. End quote. The languages of man change as man changes. Man rebels against changes which come from outside of himself. Changes required by God's constitution of things, and strives instead for self-created changes which will set forth his own creative power and ultimacy. The more radically thus that a culture stresses the ultimacy of man, the more radical will be its attempts to create self-made changes, to be totally revolutionary in the humanistic sense. The given and inherent systematics of all things 
must be replaced by the new systematics of man. The reality of the old order must be negated and the reality of man's new order affirmed. Systematics is thus at work because of this impulse in every area of life to create religiously and therefore politically, educationally, theologically, philosophically, economically, and in every other way a new system for man, a new and necessary world order. Man, however, cannot create or think out of nothing. All the building blocks of his systems are borrowed from God's world. The system's builders, such as Descartes, Kant, Hegel, Barth, Moltmann, and others, give us to a degree a novel world, a new arrangement, but the building blocks are all old ones. They all have a history, and the steps of their edifice are readily traced. The essence of modernism was well stated in the last century by Octavius Brooks Frodingham, 1822-1895, who wrote, quote, The interior of any age is the Spirit of God, and no faith can be living that has that spirit against it. No church can be strong except in that alliance. The life of the time appoints the creed of the time and modifies the establishment of the time. End quote. Existentialism stresses more fully this call for a total dependence on self-existence, but, like all things else, it manifests its history clearly. It has a given existence and essence in terms of that history, and behind that history stands God's eternal decree. Thus, although humanism seeks to offer a new word and a total word, its systematics is made up of broken and borrowed fragments of another order, and it cannot escape from God's order because it cannot escape from itself. The Christian thinker, on the other hand, does not reject God's word, world, nor God's ordered course of growth in history. He builds on that inheritance, knowing that, at his best, he is simply a step in a glorious unfolding, a fallible and small step, but an ordained one. Not only are the marks of such thinkers as Anselm, Calvin, the Westminster Standards, Burkhoff, and especially Cornelius Van Til very obvious in my writings, but even further, my writings presuppose them all and are simply a supplement of observations and developments, hopefully one stairway riser in the construction of a magnificent structure, the kingdom of God. The lightning flashes, the thunder crackles, rumbles, and rolls, and the rain falls onto a thirsty ground to nourish and bless it. Behind that sequence, which brings bread and drink to our table, stand influences and causes from the solar system, and behind them all the providence and government of God. There is an order, a systematics, in the falling rain and the sprouting seed, and in the life of all living things. Moses in Psalm 90 speaks of this order in all things, and declares in awe, Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Systematics is more than an intellectual exercise. It is a glimpse into the nature of life and of God's order and purpose. It is in our mind and our blood, and our denial of it is our own suicide and disaster. Systematics and its presuppositions of a rational order governed by the eternal decree of God cannot be limited to theological matters, for example, to the formal discussions of classroom theologians. Without risk of a Hellenic presupposition of two substances, when reality is divided into mind on the one hand and matter on the other, two diverse and ultimate substances, then the order of the mind is a different things than the order of matter. One substance may lack order and meaning, or one substance may seek to impose order on the formless realm of the other, or, again, both may have their own inherent order or lack of it. In such a perspective, the order of physics is alien to the order of logic. In the biblical perspective, instead of form, mind, and matter, 
we have the uncreated being of God and the created being of the universe. The order of all things comes from the mind of God, and His eternal decree orders and ordains all things. We have, then, no sharp line of division between physics and ethics. The fall of man affects the ground beneath man's feet, Genesis 3, 14-19, so that the whole of creation awaits its own release from the fall into the glorious liberty of the children of God through Christ, Romans 8, 19-23. Physics and ethics have a systematic connection and interrelationship in terms of Scripture. The fall affected man and the universe. Deuteronomy 28 tells us that there is a necessary and essential connection between man's faith and obedience and the material things of his existence to the very fall of the rain and the fertility of the soil. Given the doctrine of creation, this is necessarily so. Failure to see that connection and unity stems from a faulty or a false systematics. When man attempts a new word and a new systematics to replace God's word and decree, man must struggle to impose his decree on an alien world. Let us grant for a moment, for the purpose of visualizing the humanist's predicament at its best, that the world has evolved out of nothing and is a realm of brute factuality. Man then faces an ocean of non-meaning and in effect declares, Let there be meaning, because I shall, by science, education, politics, and other means, decree my meaning and impose it on the universe. Man then seeks to create a world, not out of nothing, but out of an alien something, racing against time and eternal death. This task is impossible enough. But how much more so is it impossible when we recognize that the world has an inescapable and necessary meaning in terms of its creator, who also governs and sustains it? The attempt by man to impose his word on God's universe and to replace God's order with a man-made system is sin, insanity, and death. Section 13. Neoplatonic Systematics in the world of ancient Greek philosophy, reality is made up of two alien substances, mind, or ideas, forms, and matter. Instead of the division of Christian thought between the uncreated being of God and the created being of all else, the division is between mind and matter. In all forms of Neoplatonism, this Hellenic division prevails, and it is basic to the way modern man regards himself. It is basic also to intellectualism. The intellectual may philosophically reject Greek dialecticism, but in practice he applies it. The world for him is divided between the men and the realm of ideas and the men and realm of practice and work. The modern university thus perpetuates a Greek faith by its implicit faith that the realm of ideas represents a higher realm than that of practice. Much of the hostility of the intellectuals to capitalism, technology, the life of the middle classes, to manual labor, and much, much more, stems from the unacknowledged premise that the life of ideas represents a higher stage of being. This sense of superiority is implicit in academicians, writers, the press, and in all members of the intelligentsia. Our concern, however, is more specifically with the seminary, a modern institution for the training of the clergy. The modern seminary is too often a Neoplatonic institution through and through. Its concerns are ostensibly Christian. They are, in reality, ecclesiastical and neoplatonic. We cannot begin to grasp the reason for the faltering life of the church apart from that fact. A very obvious indication of this neoplatonic division in the life of the seminary appears in its curriculum. 
the seminary curriculum is divided between two kinds of subjects or courses, the academic and the practical. This is at once a plain indication of the radically Neoplatonic life of the seminary. Moreover, there is no question as to which side has prestige. The academic is held in high respect. The practical is regarded with very low esteem and is seen as a concession to the requirement of church life. Students view the practical courses as a nuisance, as they usually are, and fail to see that the academic courses are equally wretched. The division between the academic, the realm of ideas or the mind, and the practical, the realm of practice and matter, is plainly Hellenic and Neoplatonic. There is no hint in the Bible of any such division. The Bible does not speak often of the wise or ancients, as in Ezekiel 7.26, Jeremiah 18.8, but the reference is to a class of rulers, elders, men who ruled by the law of God. The modern division in the seminary is not of biblical origin. The presupposition of all Greek philosophy was in an ultimate impersonalism. The highest kind of thinking was abstract and impersonal, on the assumption that such thinking was closer thereby to reality. In terms of this alien tradition, the seminary, in its academic courses, adopts an abstract and critical analysis as the key to learning. Students are rigorously trained in this intellectualistic approach to the text of Scripture, to apologetics, systematics, and all things else. Our Lord gives an emphatically different perspective. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. John 7.17 Knowledge and practice are inseparably united. They cannot be divided, because life is not divisible into two constituent kinds of being. Very simply stated, as God gave his word to the prophets of old, he did not divide it into a spiritual and a practical word. The word is not segmented into one section for Christian scholars to meditate over and another for others to act on. There is no abstract and intellectual word as against a practical word. Merely to suggest such a division is to make apparent how ridiculous an idea it is. Where God declares himself to be the eternal and sovereign Lord, the Creator, it is in order to assert his authority and to make clear his power to command. Thus, in Isaiah 45, we have many declarations with regard to God as Creator. We are told by God, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Isaiah 45, 7. This text has been the object of much intellectual discussion. Is God the author of sin? What does he mean by creating evil? How shall we translate the word rendered evil? The word create is in the Hebrew bara. Does this make God the author of sin? Is not the point of the text rather to stress the incredible arrogance and insanity of sin, of disobedience to God? We are not asked to probe into the mind of God with respect to the mysteries of God's absolute sovereignty and man's responsibility for sin. We are rather required to hear and obey. God demands of the disobedient and the rebellious. Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherd of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman? What hast thou brought forth? Isaiah 45, 9 and 10. The goal God has in mind he very plainly sets forth. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. 
the seminary approaches this word blasphemously. In the academic segment of its Neoplatonic lives, it subjects this word to an historical analysis. Was this word indeed written by 1st Isaiah or 2nd Isaiah, or some later Isaiah? What was the historical situation which governs and conditions the text? What religious and mythical allusions are there in this chapter? The text is studied in abstraction, as though God were not speaking to the scholars. As for the plain mandate of God's word, let us leave that to the practical courses. There the student could study, again with alien premises, the working life of the Christian community. Moreover, the practical departments will make their Neoplatonic bows to the realm of the Spirit. Is preaching to be taught? We must be expository. The text is to be analyzed and carefully expounded, and the preacher becomes a dissector of the Bible. Preaching becomes an anatomist's dissection report out of the laboratory. We are told that expository preaching, at its best, is exegetical. Now, exegesis means to set forth the meaning of the text. But is it exegesis if it is done with Neoplatonic presuppositions, so that we contemplate an abstraction? Thus, one very prominent and very able seminary professor cited as a model expository sermon, clearly exegetical, the following outline for Genesis 1.1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 1. What things were originated, the heavens and the earth? 2. By whom they were originated, by God? 3. When they were originated, in the beginning? 4. How they were originated, by creation? This professor, whose name out of respect I omit, because he was a superior man, all the same gives us a model sermon for providing information. But Christian preaching does not provide information in abstraction. God's word never speaks to satisfy our curiosity, but to command us. God declares the facts of creation so that we might know our place therein, our calling, and his mandate. God's word is a declarative word. The Christian preaching must be a declarative word. Exposition, exegesis, smacks of the classroom, of the seminary and its Neoplatonic divisions, dissections, and abstractions. The systematics of Neoplatonism is thus very clearly set forth in the curriculum of the seminary. On the one hand, we have Old Testament and New Testament departments, and church history and theology philosophy departments. The seminary scholars are located here. Their favored students are prospective scholars, future professors, and they tend to regard the everyday life of faith as somewhat removed, and as belonging to that other realm of the seminary, the practical departments. To give some degree of hollow prestige to the teaching of churchmanship, missions, preaching, and the like, these departments are given such high-sounding names as departments of practical theology. The plain implication of this common designation is that the more prestigious departments of theology are impractical. The truth is that both kinds of theology are impractical and neoplatonic. The various departments of impractical theology never really satisfy the Christian hunger of students, despite their prestige, because they are abstract and unrelated to God's reality. This is one reason why student after student in seminary testifies that he dries up spiritually, losing his cutting edge and vigor. The contrast with life is lacking, and thus the subjects become impractical and irrelevant. The student tends to starve in a land of potential plenty. In my youth, when more pastors were still scholars, one of the sad facts was that many of these orthodox men were great experts in Reichel, who was suddenly obsolete, as Karl Barth began to command attention, and the focus of their theological training was thus out of kilter. What shall the prospective pastors do? Turn to practical theology? 
but practical theology departments are just as impractical, and the student, if he does not turn his back on the seminary, is made over into a warped and fragmented man. The very gap, and often tension, which exists between the faculty members of the two branches of the seminary is evidence of the failure of the seminary and of its Neoplatonism. The practical men are normally taken from the pastorate. They are good at public relations, promotions, financing, pulpiteering, and the like, and sometimes fuzzy on doctrine. The scholars on the faculty are at best judiciously tolerant of these men. The seminary, after all, is dependent on the churches. At worst, the practical men are regarded as a necessary evil, to be suffered but not allowed too much place in the curriculum. The scholars are usually self-consciously removed from practical considerations. The fact that Calvin and Jonathan Edwards were pastors, as were Augustine, Athanasius, and others, is to modern scholars merely an, an historical, not irrelevant, fact. What has the seminary done to the life of the church? The Christian synagogue has become progressively more and more under the influence of the practical interests as the Neoplatonic dialectic collapses. The academic departments become more and more abstract. The scholars draw closer, not to the church, but to other scholars. Seminary accreditation is now held to be a necessity. Reformed and evangelical scholars seek fellowship with other scholars, often irrespective of theology, in scholarly organizations and societies. They write not for the thoughtful behavior, but for other scholars. Almost all evangelical and reformed scholarly works are written with a non-existent modernist audience in mind. Most are thus pathetic in their futility. They seek to prove, not to declare. The systematics of Neoplatonism works to break the dialectic tension between mind and body and to establish their implicit dualism. Because of this, the seminary works to create, with each generation, a more and more irrelevant type of religion, with Neoplatonic eschatologies of retreat and withdrawal. But in Neoplatonism, despite the presence of the two substances, one is superior, the spiritual. It is the higher realm. The higher realm for the scholars is the ideational. For the practical men, and for the church members, it becomes the spiritual, the charismatic, the emotional, and the heart realms of activities of love. In both cases, the wholeness of God's word and its materiality becomes lost. The modernist senses this loss, and he adopts the other half of the dialectic, the material. As against a non-biblical spiritual religion, he adopts a non-biblical materialistic religion. In either case, antinomianism prevails, and humanism is triumphant. The faith becomes irrelevant to God in life. An excellent example of the academic abstraction is the book by Jack Rogers, editor, Biblical Authority, 1977. The problem of biblical authority is discussed. Typically, for the seminary mind or the academic mind, all articles of faith are essentially problems for scholarly analysis. Infallibility and inerrancy are discussed, often in, a, in abstraction from one another, and generally in abstraction from the doctrine of God. The results are exercises in irrelevance and futility. Critical analysis is basic to the life of scholarship and to humanism. Its presupposition is the ultimacy of judgment by the autonomous mind of man. Kant developed criticism as a formal tool, but before him, the philosophies of the Enlightenment had proclaimed the omnipotence of criticism. Criticism is neither rationalism nor empiricism in essence. It is anti-theism. It is intolerant of any fixed body of truth or of any unquestionable fact. For example, God, the infallible and inerrant word, six-day creationism, etc. 
Criticism's certain word is the critical and analytic word of the critic. It calls for the endless dissection of every challenge to the omnipotence of criticism. It is a demand for the right to question everything and to declare criticism as man's compass rather than God's word. Anselm of Canterbury declared, quote, I believe so that I may understand, end quote. His starting point was faith in the triune God and his word, and in the searching Christian analysis of all things in terms of that word. Critical analysis has roots in Abelard's, quote, I understand in order that I may believe, end quote. But the latter half of that statement is false, and the first, deceptive. In reality, the submission of Christian faith is alien to that premise. The goal is, I criticize that I alone may stand. Its hidden premise is the autonomy of the critic and his ultimacy. Critical analysis can never see the relevancy of the Word of God to the world because it fails to see God and His Word as living and relevant. The goal for critical analysis is more analysis and more criticism. I am often told by members of the scholarly fraternity that my own writings and the position of Chalcedon are interesting, but that I need to enter into scholarly dialogue and into the world of critical analysis in order to be relevant. This statement is often made with courtesy and friendliness by persons who want my work to gain prestige. But the goal of ideas is not criticism but action. Christian analysis determines the relevancy of ideas and action to the Word of God and works to enhance the vitality of the relationship of thought and work to God and to His Word. It works under mandate, not in a scholarly limbo. And this, of course, is the predicament of the modern seminary. It is in neither heaven nor hell but in limbo, and it is irrelevant to God's word and world.